ignition sequence start. Five. Everything. Three. Everything. Sounds. Sounds. This is Everything Sounds. One thing we used to do is, after the door is closed, just everybody take a, a deep breath and just be quiet as you can. I'm Craig Shank. I'm George Drake Jr. And this is Everything Sounds. George and I recently went back to Bloomington, Indiana, which is not only the home to our alma mater, Indiana University, and its basketball legacy, but more importantly, or at least for this show, home to two rooms that are two of the most unnatural-sounding spaces in the world. These two rooms have always been a mystery to George, while we were there in college and even years afterwards, so I'll just let him explain what they are. Okay, this is really exciting. So, IU has these two chambers. They're mainly unknown by the student population, but when I was a student there, I found out about them through an audio professor. He told my class about these two rooms. They were both built in the 1950s, and he explained that when you walk into them, you're standing on a metal grate. And when you're in them, it's difficult to hear the people that are only standing three feet away from you in either one of the chambers. And also, they were originally built to test the hearing of rabbits. How cool is that? It would be pretty cool if all of it were true. Like most great stories, there is a kernel of truth in most of that, but some of it just got stretched out. Well, yeah, I mean, I did have my questions, but just imagine a younger George completely fascinated by these two rooms for years. And imagine an older Craig now confirming that because you told me about them constantly over the course of a few years. You were always wondering where they were on campus, how we could get inside of them, if they're still testing animals. For literally years after he'd first heard about them, he always wanted to talk about the chambers. They were a complete myth and mystery to George. That was until one day I took a bike ride around campus. I went to the north side, which I didn't really go to ever, and I found myself around the tailgating fields and the three dorms that up there. I rode around for a bit and eventually turned down a really short driveway into a collection of buildings. And there they were, just two beige cube-shaped buildings with no windows. And I remember that. I saw you right afterwards. You told me you had finally found them. I remember you being really out of breath, too. I was excited. And I just sprinted across campus on my bike to tell you, so. And you said something about wanting me to go see it as well, but then you tried to remember where they were and you realize that you wouldn't have been able to get us back there. You know, I would still have, I was just there with you, and I still would have trouble finding them. (laughs) (laughs) But long story short, cut to present day George and Craig hosting a show called Everything Sounds, and naturally, here we are today. Um, Well, I think uh, they refer to them as acoustic test chambers on campus, um, but then the two chambers themselves are an anechoic and and an echoic chamber. So yeah, one has uh, no reflections or echoes, and the other one enhances and has a lot of reflections and echoes. That's Dr. Larry Humes. He's a distinguished professor at the Speech and Hearing Sciences Department at IU. He's just one of four people that we spoke to about these chambers, but he specifically helped us find out about what they're currently used for, and the other three told us a bit about the history and gave us a tour of the rooms, and we'll get to that later. 
Like George said, the chambers are on the north side of the Indiana University uh, campus. Let's see, it's kind of the corner of Forest and 13th, I believe, right around that intersection. But you That's can't just walk in like you probably could most academic buildings on campus. It's pretty much on a need-to-know basis. These rooms were originally built by the psychology department, but the speech and hearing sciences department recently took them over. And it's actually a good thing they did, because the rooms hadn't been utilized in some time. And actually, for a number of years, they were being used as storage. So they were in a bit of disrepair. Um, they've gone through a couple different stages of renovation. Uh, most recently, the past few years has been the most recent attempt to uh, upgrade the facilities and make it possible to run human subjects. And so, for example, um, I've been here for 27 years. For 25 years, um, at least, there weren't any um, accessible restroom facilities. Now there are, and so it's possible to actually have people like a research assistant there all day, have older adults come in because, you know, they may not have anticipated a need to use the facilities. And so anyway, that was one hurdle. It's been all kind of infrastructure things. After they cleared them out and added that bathroom, one of the things that they began testing was localization issues in elderly people. Localization is something that Craig and I have touched on before, but it's essentially being able to tell where a sound is coming from and eliminating the other noises around you to focus in on that one sound. And, and there really hasn't been a systematic study of how aging impacts um, that basic ability. And you need a chamber like the anechoic chamber to be able to study that because you can't have uh, reflections. And so we have a unique facility that would allow us to do that. And there's good reason to suspect um, that older adults will have difficulty doing that kind of localization. So these chambers are useful because you can test for two different things in the same building. One allows you to pinpoint where sounds are coming from because other noises aren't a factor, and the other is crucial to the testing of hearing aids because it provides the variable to the test, the sound's reverberation. The question is, now that they've calibrated the subject's hearing accordingly in the anechoic chamber, would the hearing aid work properly in the echoic chamber? So we can look at them in anechoic chambers and then take them right next door and take them to, and, and you can actually manipulate the reverberation. We've done that in the past. So we can take somebody for, without any reverberation with hearing aids, see how they're doing, and now put them in a room that's more like a living room or more like a classroom to see immediately how it impacts their performance. Although the chambers are primarily used for the speech and hearing department at IU, they've gotten some requests from other departments to use them. Most often they get requests from people in the music department wanting to use the spaces for recording, but usually that's the echoic chamber. The reverb you hear on recordings is often simulated, but the echoic chamber provides a true reverb. So it's interesting, you know, for speech communication, reverberation is bad. For music, um, reverberation is good. You don't want... Uh, concert hall to be dead. You don't want it to be anechoic and getting the right mix of exactly how live you want it, um, not having dead spots in the audience at different locations. There's a lot of engineering involved to make it just the right liveness and coloration kind of that you can get from a, uh, enough reflection. So yeah, it's interesting. It depends on what your needs are acoustically. Um, one would be very good for speech, but terrible for music, and the other would be better for music, uh, but not very good for speech. So after we finished talking to Dr. Humes about his work with the Chambers, we went to see them firsthand. When we got there, there were three men ready to give us a tour. There were Chuck Watson, Gary Kidd, and James Miller. And James was actually there when they were first built. But that's besides the point. Before we go any further, 
we need to clear some things up that we said earlier. Craig, you ready? All right, let's do it. Okay, so first off, were they built in the 1950s? Yes, they were. Okay, so next, do you walk in a metal grate when you were inside of them? In both cases, yes. There wasn't a floor in either of the rooms. The floor is also a part of what makes the room echoic or anechoic, so they don't want you to walk on what actually creates the property of that room. Next, is it true that you are unable to hear what somebody says if they say it standing only three feet away from you? That one's completely false. Sound doesn't work that way. Essentially, the anechoic chamber stops sounds from reflecting off of the walls. So if you hit a drum, it will sound really direct. The room can't absorb all of the sound you make like a sponge. Sounds are still audible in that space. In the echoic chamber, the sound won't bounce off the walls and continuously get louder and louder and more chaotic. It only does that up to a point before it fades away. And finally, were they originally built to test the hearing of rabbits? As cool as that might sound, no, not true. Ne neither of the chambers were used for that sort of thing. This is Chuck Watson. A later investigator, some years after we ended our series of studies, had some animals that were housed briefly in, in one or both of these chambers just because they didn't have any place else to put them. <laughs> and uh, when I came here as, as a chairman of the speech and hearing department in 83, the, these were in pretty disreputable shape and they, <laughs> they smelled of animals and so forth. Since we started out in the anechoic chamber, we'll begin there. It's kind of a dark space, and all around you there are these big brown wedges wrapped in chicken wire. Literally all around you, and like we said a minute ago, all four walls plus the ceiling and the floor underneath the metal grate you're walking on, it's all covered in the material. Gary shut this huge rolling door behind us, and not to sound cliche, the silence was deafening. And that's where we'll actually go all the way back to the beginning. One thing we used to do is after the door is closed, just everybody take a, a deep breath and just be quiet as you can. Well, I, my, I hear my ears ringing. Yeah, that's <laughs> my, that, ears my, my ears are ringing terribly. Chuck made it a point to remind us that the ringing that we're hearing is constantly there. It's usually just covered up by other noise around us in our daily lives. While some people hear it more clearly than others, it's not until you get into an anechoic chamber that the ringing becomes so completely noticeable. It's also a bit musky inside of the room. It's nothing unsettling, but you can tell that it's been there for a while. The wedges around you are made of fiberglass, which back in the 1970s was the best material they could get for a fair price. Yeah. This is James Miller. And to save money, graduate students cut, you buy big sheets of fiberglass and you have a saw and you cut them into these shapes. And you get very itchy. <laughs> <laughs> and the wedges aren't just wedges. tacked up on the walls in a haphazard way. They're strategically placed. Let's say you talk into the wall of a house. It's safe to estimate that the sound would be 90% absorbed and 10% reflected. But... Here's Chuck again. When you hit one of those wedges, because of the angle, it, uh, it reflects into another wedge and so forth. And, and so, so you lose 90% of the energy each time it hits something, and after a few bounces, there's very little left. So 
essentially, they just disappear into the walls around us. Uh, well, sound waves result from a vibration of an object, and then it, it compresses the air and then expands the air. So you get uh, waves traveling th through, the, through the air, and they have physical energy. And when they hit these wedges, that energy gets converted into heat. And it's a minute amount of heat, but that, that's what keeps it from being reflected. In addition to that, behind the wedges, there's even more padding. And there's also a little space behind all the wedges, which is designed to soak up some of the more low-frequency sounds. Now, you might be thinking that covering six sides of a room with fiberglass is not the smartest thing to do. You might also think that soundproofing technology has surely advanced over the past 40 years, so there have to be some better options. You wouldn't be wrong. They've had the rooms checked out for any harmful qualities they may have and come up absolutely clean, so there's no worry about that. But as far as refurbishing the fiberglass walls are concerned, they're probably not going to do that. Not for very long. <laughs> it's, it's a very, very expensive thing to do, no matter what material you use, because nobody makes these... Uh, you know, on an assembly line. These are, these are handmade. Before going into the chambers ourselves, George and I had heard horror stories about people who had spent time in anechoic chambers. Some of the stories involve people hearing their heartbeat, but also the blood rushing through their veins. We heard about people that stayed in those rooms long enough that they start to get overwhelmed and they begin to have psychological problems as a result. We stood in there for a better part of an hour, and even though we could hear that ringing in our ears, nothing else really came up. But then again, we were with other people. According to James, it's possible to have some really strange things happen. I was involved in an experiment uh, in another chamber similar to this, where I sat in a darkened room, and I was supposed to estimate how far away the loudspeaker was from me. And during the course of that, I always experienced uh, travel. I mean, I felt the chair got up and moved to a different part of the room and so on and so forth. And then when the lights came on, I was right where I <laughs> began. So, yeah, you do, when you get sensory deprivation, sometimes you have weird uh, experiences. Yeah. Now, I had the microphone when we were in the anechoic chamber, so naturally I was wearing headphones. And what amazed me is how well everything was picked up by the microphone during the conversation. All of what you've been hearing them say was recorded from a mic that was about two feet away, which is just unheard of when recording something outside of an anechoic chamber. Normally mic placements range anywhere from seven to three inches, depending on the environment. Anyway, I kept my headphones on until Chuck told me to take them off. Yeah, you really ought to take your earphones off at least for a minute or two to appreciate what this place sounds like. Uh, yeah, here you can just... Wow. Just... That's unreal. Yeah. Maybe that doesn't do the room justice, but hearing a clap with no reverberation whatsoever was just bizarre. After we exhausted everything in the anechoic chamber, we headed next door to the echoic chamber. And of course, based on our prior experience, we decided to clap in there as well. And James, he took it a little bit further. <laughs> and not just once. Now, the echoic chamber itself is the same size as the anechoic chamber, but the inside is much smaller. See, the anechoic chamber is covered with four feet of foam on each side. 
but the echoic chamber is entirely open, with gray walls, no two of which are parallel, allowing the sounds just to bounce around the room. So we were in the echoic chamber, and Chuck started talking about how slow sound is. He explained that sound travels at roughly one foot per millisecond, which is about 1,000 feet every second. And he said, let's put it this way. Uh, Light goes 186,000 miles per second. 186,000 miles. Sound goes 1,000 feet in a second. There's just no comparison to sound and light. Sound is a physical sense. Getting from point A to point B is actually a bit of a process. So here we are in here, and a lot of the energy from my speech is getting to the microphone directly from my mouth, but much of it is lagging 15 or 20 milliseconds behind because it's coming from that wall over there. Or, or 30 milliseconds behind because it's from that place, or a double bounce from somewhere. And all those bounces are effectively spreading out the duration of the sound as it gets to your ear. So a, a sound that should have taken only, say, 20 milliseconds to occur if it was, went into your ear accurately, and now it's been smurged, so it's now about a 50 millisecond sound, and, and it sounds very confused. James gave us an example of how the rooms worked. He told George to take a step back into one corner of the room to record what he was about to say while he went to the other corner diagonal from it. He said the first line of the Gettysburg Address, but while he was saying it, he turned around in a circle so that you could hear how his voice reacted with the room. Was it four score? How many years ago? Four, seven. Seven? seven? Four score and seven years ago, our forefathers brought forth on this continent a new nation dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we'll go do that in the other room. His voice dropped a little bit, and because of the reverberation, the words were kind of mashed together. But overall, the echoic chamber actually made it easier to hear what he was saying. After that, we returned to the anechoic chamber to do the same experiment. Okay, Gettysburg address okay. take two. <laughs> yes. Four score and seven years ago, our forefathers brought forth on this continent a new nation dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. As you may have heard, when he faced the corner, his voice almost vanished completely. Now, if you're an audio nerd, you may say it sounded like the high end from his voice was removed. But either way you put it, hearing how much of a difference 180 degrees made is just unbelievable. James went on to explain that while some of his voice was reflected from the fiberglass wedges into the microphone, his voice would have dropped out more if it weren't for his voice radiating from places other than his mouth. The sound of my voice radiates out from my chest, my neck, and out my mouth. But some goes out the back. So when I turned around, we absorb mainly what, what I'm projecting, but you're still getting the projection from my back. Because, see, the whole body goes into vibration when you make those speech sounds. So the reason you could... Chuck explained that the first attempt at creating an anechoic chamber was at Harvard. They didn't have a room or fiberglass wedges. They just had a tall chair on top of the highest building in the area. Essentially, that allowed for no sound to be reflected off of different surfaces because there weren't any. The anechoic and echoic chambers at Indiana University's campus are more than just selling points for the speech and hearing department. 
While they might seem bizarre or maybe not that useful from the outside, they're providing a way to find solutions to common problems that people encounter in their everyday lives. As I said at the beginning, I had been wanting to see these chambers for about six years. And even though they weren't built for conducting some strange experiments, seeing them firsthand was an absolute honor. But it wasn't the chambers that I liked the most. It was the people we met, Larry, James, Gary, and Chuck. They're guys just like Craig and me. They love working with sound and learning about it and meeting other people that have the same appreciation they do. Sure, I knocked something off of my bucket list, but I met some great people along the way. Professor Egan, who built these rooms, uh, used to, he, he studied chemistry before he studied hearing. And he used to tell uh, Chuck and I that you have, to, you have to purify the chemicals. A big part of research is getting all the variables purified so you know what you're working with. And, and that's what you can do here with sound. You, you can be sure you, you know what you're working with. You can find out more about the Indiana University Speech and Hearing Sciences Department and their anechoic and echoic chambers at our website, everythingsounds.org. We also took some pictures while we were in the chambers, so you can see those for yourself. Again, everythingsounds.org. While you're there, you can find out how to subscribe to Everything Sounds on iTunes. And although you might not think it, rating and reviewing a show can really go a long way. Each rating and review helps us gain exposure and move up in the rankings. So if you have a moment, We'd appreciate your reviews and ratings whenever you get a chance. It won't take more than two minutes, and we'd really appreciate it. Until next time, this has been Everything Sounds. I'm Craig Shank. And I'm George Drake, Jr. This has been Everything Sounds. Find out more about the podcast at everythingsounds.org. Connect with Everything Sounds on Facebook and also on Twitter.